I'm Brian Covey, and you're listening to The Optical. Welcome to episode 16 of The Optical Podcast, where we're revisiting the history of VFX films and movie technology through the lens of Cinefx Magazine. This may be a long shot, but if you're in Seattle for Emerald City Comic Con on Friday, March 27th at 4.30 p.m., I will be part of a panel uh, for Sarcastic Voyage, which is described as sketch comedy for nerds. And uh, love to see you there. Come by and say hi if you are a listener of the show. Thanks to Cinefx for providing us access to these out-of-print back issues. And stay tuned for your chance to win a one-year print subscription to Cinefx Magazine later in the show. This episode, we're looking at Cinefx number 12 and the article titled Something Wicked This Way Comes, Adding the Magic by Brad Munson, which I can't find anyone really referencing it at the time, but it seems like it might be the first feature film to use CGI to represent real-world objects in a realistic manner, as in, it's not meant to be a computer simulation in the movie. There's only one shot that made it in, as far as I can tell, but it was a year before The Last Starfighter, which still gets the first extensive use of integrated CGI merit. Anyway, we'll talk more about that in our chat. If you want to know more about the things we talk about, check out the show notes on our website at opticalpodcast.com with cool links and additional information for this and every other episode of the show. You can subscribe to the show free on iTunes or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or SoundCloud at username Optical Podcast. We would love that. If you have any questions or want to tell us what you think of the show, email us at feedback at opticalpodcast.com or use the feedback form on our website. Got a VFX question? Maybe we'll answer it on the show. But now, what's so wicked about this film? Hellfire storms are coming. An electric storm to clean your streets and wash away your trouble. For every heart, there exists a wish. For every soul, there burns a desire. But never whisper your dreams for someone here with me to talk about something wicked this way comes is brian covey how are you doing brian i'm very well tonight thank you <laughs> that's excellent i'm glad is. to hear that i should have said i should have made a pun on wicked i'm wicked mark <laughs> i'm w- wicked wicked excellent <laughs> I, this was probably not a movie that i would have seen had i been forced to stumble across it on my own. So I I really love some Ray Bradbury. Like I've got a dog-eared copy of Ours for Rocket in one of the many boxes I'm badly moving across town right now. Ooh. See, that's that there's that's where I fall yeah. down because I don't have like I, there's like uh, maybe four or five sci-fi authors that I was really into and okay. Ray Bradbury, I just never got exposed to him. Oh, uh, okay. So missed out i guess yeah i really i really enjoyed his stories and this actually watching this kind of makes me want to have a few rather stiff adult beverages and watch the ben affleck um sound of thunder which just can't possibly be a good idea because that's just no but anyways so like hmm. I, I know i watched the movie at some point as a child and the, when i do these podcasts with you i come to the conclusion that young me didn't know anything because uh-huh. i had a memory of being disappointed by this film but i actually really dug it really like, on the rewatch yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. so hmm. 
I'm not sure that I felt the same way. <laughs> so what you're saying is we're inverted. We inverted our positions from the last time we did this, where I was skeptical on the film and you yeah. were like, I really dug it. Okay. Yeah. I was just, I, I don't know. It felt, it felt very weird. It had a very weird tone for a Disney film to begin with, just with the like very kind of adult longing for youth tones and like it's got kids at the center of it but they're not really at the center of it they're just kind of like to string us along to the next piece of the story yeah like in the the third act it basically all becomes about the dad which is kind of a weird shift yeah well like in the voiceover at the very beginning is like well i guess it's really my dad's story and blah blah oh yeah i guess (laughs) yeah Hmm, i hadn't considered it from that angle yeah but yeah but he's not like really the central character of the beginning it's like there's a beat and switch with the kids and yeah <laughs> yeah well so like i actually like the first couple minutes of the film i was sitting there I was still wallowing in like i watched this movie when i was a 20 something and i really didn't remember it very fondly hmm. but something about like and, and it was i mean first of all i wanted to run up and buy a page boy cap because man every time you see like an adorable <laughs> kid running around like it's the 1920s cars are crazy and people don't have them yet uh, but i mean so having ray bradbury write the screenplay for his own book like the dialogue at the very beginning, that voiceover that he does, it is mm-hmm. really overly wordy, but in a way that if you've read the book, you're like, oh, yeah, okay, I know what I'm in for. It's maybe going to be a little precious with itself. Hmm. But okay. at the same time, this is something I really like. So if you want to get precious with that, you go to town on that. <laughs> so did you, you were a fan of the book before you saw the I had read. I haven't read it in a million years, but I had, I had a memory of the overall shape of the story. But it just... Like, it's one of those ones where I was like, okay, I'm sitting down and this movie already feels like a book, which is kind of what I'm mm. up for, given what we were about to spend a couple of hours doing. Sure. Yeah. It's, I, I very quickly was like, oh man, old movies are awesome. Like just credits at the beginning, <laughs> which, you know, you yeah. never get that anymore. Was, anyway, so like I was basically wallowing in my own nostalgia within minutes of starting up this film. So huh. maybe it was just, you know, that. Yeah. Maybe I just didn't have that <laughs> frame of reference to work from, but. I thought it was interesting that uh, it, it took so long to gestate. It was the, the I mean, they could have mentioned it a bit in the in the Cinefix article that it started out as a short story that was called Dark Ferris that was published yeah. in Weird Tales magazine, and then you know it kind of expanded into a larger form that uh, Gene Kelly was going to direct. Yeah, him, which, huh? <laughs> well, you know, Sam Peckinpah, so. Well, also Sam Peckinpah, <laughs> Mark Rydell, and Steven Spielberg, too. And they always all, those all fell through. Yeah. Eventually, Jack Clayton directed it. Um, oh, yeah, The Great Gatsby. Oh, yeah, they mentioned that article, yeah. With Robert Redford, that one. Which, which I was also not a big fan of, but <laughs> I don't know. I guess Basil Ehrman is more my speed. Oh, oh, I've just learned something and it's not a good thing, but that's all right. (laughs) Jonathan Price as Mr. Dark was uh, pretty cool. Yeah. Because I I love him in Brazil. Yeah. Well, okay. So it's time for me to confess. I've actually never finished Brazil. I know. I'm a a bad person. Never finished? I've started it. How many times have you started it? At least, (laughs) at least four. And I just, for whatever reason, I can't make it. Like, I like other Gilliam films. I huh. just can't make it through. I have the same problem with On the Road. Like, I've started that book a million times, and I never finish it. One of those books that everyone Kerouac? Yeah. Oh, exactly. yeah. Yeah, I just can't do it. Start it. I'm fine with it. Never finish it. I started that twice, <laughs> yeah, so see? I'm with you there. Yeah, okay. It's kind of, it's kind of like uh, Tolkien for me. Yeah. I've I started The Hobbit like six times and just... 
Nope. Uh, no, you know what? I, I could say things and it's just going to make your audience angry at me. So I'll just say that sometimes when a linguist writes a really long series of books, mm-hmm. a movie is a wonderful thing. And this is a podcast about movies. So we can appreciate the movies of The Lord of the Rings. Yes. Well, we'll get to that in a, in, yeah. in a decade. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, or unless we talk about the animated uh, Rankin-Bass. Wait. Of it. Oh, there was something related to uh, Nimoy just passing away, and there was something not. Was, oh, oh he, the the ballad of Bilbo Baggins. No, uh, there was something. There was something else. Maybe I'm misremembering. Maybe I'm misremembering. Is the, the John Lasseter thing mentioned in the article? I'm totally derailing us. By the way, <laughs> there is a John Lasseter thing in the article because yeah. they use synthavision, which was originally developed. Was it a uh, John Lasseter Lord of the Rings thing, or am I just conflating? No, John Lasseter was working on an adaptation of Where the Wild Things Are. Right. Yeah, we'll talk about that because that sounds fantastic. Which is very much like Lord of the Rings in no ways that yeah, I can think in of. Absolutely no way whatsoever. <laughs> but, you know, same thing pretty much. <laughs> but also that uh, once they had been working on the production for a while, they had practically finished the film before special effects came into the picture. Yeah, because they were booked on a couple of other gigs. Like, they doing Tron. I didn't realize this, but, it, I mean, of course you're going to tie up your entire effects department doing Epcot as well, the the park. Yeah, I guess doing video there's stuff a lot for Epcot of, yeah, as there's well. a, I went there as a kid. I've never a, been to Epcot. I, I went as a child. Yeah. I kind of want to, I went, well, I went as a child and I went in, like, once in my 20s, like, as a, I was on a tri- trip with a family friend mm-hmm. and it was awesome. You have kids, so you should take your yeah. kids to Epcot. That's totally a different thing. Like we went, we, we went to Disney world and yeah. we just like Epcot was like a whole nother $50 for the day or something. And we just, <laughs> just didn't go. I want you to go to Epcot. Cause I want to know what Epcot plus 30 years is like. And I don't want to be the one to find out. Huh. It was awesome in the eighties. Put it that way. It sounds like, yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed like the Tomorrowland part of Disney World. So imagine Tomorrowland, but taking itself seriously. Like there was, I mean, it's not like hokey. This is welcome to future town, but it's like very much trying (laughs) to actually predict what the future is going to be like in that way that the 1980s tried to do. Mm. So you should go take your kids. Tell me all about it. I would love to. (laughs) Although my children are 18 and 15 at this point so oh, they're, they're not gonna not, yeah they're yeah. like mm, we don't like anything we don't want to go yeah i'll just go with my wife there you go she yeah. likes disney yeah he had really like director jack clayton had pretty much locked down the entire film before they finally had freed up people to work on it uh for the effects and uh effects supervisor lee dyer came in and kind of uh worked with clayton to storyboard the entire film because apparently Clayton didn't like to work with storyboards because he felt it kind of tied him down yeah. a little too much yeah. to the storyboards, which I can I can understand. But if you're working with effects stuff, it's, yeah, I think they, it's pretty they, hard to work without it. Yeah, and they had to renegotiate some of the shots because he hadn't really like basically had done the shot in the way that made sense for the movie. When the effects guys are like, "We can't, we need to add something here, and there's nothing for us to do. We got to reshoot this." Right? I think remember that happening a couple times. Yeah, or the, this wasn't locked yeah. down, and we yeah. got to add something here. Or, yeah. <laughs> Trying to do a, a mat shot with it, or yeah. so they they like split it up into like you know some of the, some of the stuff they just they rewrote a bunch of stuff in it and actually rearchitected a whole bunch of scenes. Like some of them they dropped entirely, some of them they enhanced the existing one with some like opticals, animation, uh, whatever. Some of it they reshot uh, parts of it or the the whole scene, uh, and some entirely new sequences were in there that they had 
you know, in, in discussions to trying to figure out, well, how can we enhance this with effects? And well, they had, you know, for instance, there was one scene with the, I guess, after the, the kids have already encountered the carnival and they're like getting back to their house, the witch is supposed to be able to track them somehow and <laughs> is floating over their house in a balloon. And then there's this yeah. giant witch hand that comes down yeah. to like knock on the window. Yeah. And it just, Never quite came off right. Yeah, they said they couldn't get it to work. It's like it looked terrible, so they scrapped that. Yeah. So, I mean, we're jumping ahead now, but that's where the spider sequence comes from, which is like the one place where I kind of jumped out of the movie because it, I was watching along. This is before I'd read. So I watched the movie and then I read the article. And as I was watching through the first time, mm-hmm. I'm like, these kids, the kids look different now. And it must have been because they came back after, around after the rest of the yeah, shooting it was, like was nine done. Months like, later, yeah, and... puberty pretty makes changes. <laughs> <laughs> so the kids, yeah, the kids had been, like visibly changed. What is time. wrong with these kids? No, I'm just they looked different. I was like, they look. Yeah, anyway, well, that must have been they'd gotten on the carousel for a few seconds yes. and yes. aged. Which <laughs> 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 we'll talk about yes. it too. Hey, and and some of the bits, even with like the rejiggering, still didn't quite makes sense to me it kind of felt like if you read the book this probably makes total sense and if you haven't it's like uh yeah there who's this guy with the lightning rod and why are they torturing him now it's is he i i i guess i you know gathered by the end of it it's like well i guess he's related to some supernatural force that's against the carnival people but (laughs) yeah they're definitely it definitely left a lot unspoken like you kind of just had to go with the flow in the film because they're not going to, they didn't really explain things in a way that made a lot of sense. Mm. Things just sort of happened. There were a bunch of people who worked on Tron that worked on this. For instance, Harrison Ellenshaw, who we talked to in episode nine, he supervised the miniature construction um, along with Ron Tanton, who is uh, in the special effects department head. But Ellenshaw also uh, stepped in and did some matte painting work um, when one of the matte painters was out sick for a little while. And he also, uh, told me he designed the opening uh, title animation sequence, which a kind of weird, bloody kind of <laughs> look that was, to the text. That was another one of those things that really contributed to me, like instantly being on board with the film, because I mean, it was a very obviously a hand animated sequence, but somebody at the tail end there took the time to add in this like completely superfluous, like something, no, superfluous is the wrong word. Uh, so like the train is coming towards the, towards the viewer. Right. And it, as the, the logo fades in, they do this extra bit where there's a flash, an animated flash. It's not from the photography, but like, it's mm-hmm. like the train is signing, is, uh, the train headlight is shining on the oh, logo. It's when Lee Dyer's credit comes up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the effect supervisor is like, let's add a little flash to the effect supervisor's title. I didn't realize yeah. that, but I liked it. It appealed to me. I didn't understand that it was all <laughs> driven by a massive ego, apparently. <laughs> Um, uh, Jesse Silver uh, worked as a, as a matte painter on it as well. Um, he was he has also been a background painter on Tron, and Isidore Raponi, who is an associate of uh, Carlo Rambaldi, he w- worked on miniatures and the mechanical spiders that w- which we already mentioned a little mm-hmm. bit. But Carlo Rambaldi is this amazing guy <laughs> who's we talked about him a little bit in the last episode about et he built et oh, all, okay. all the mechanical okay. stuff going back to like you know when he first started out working for a bunch of like italian horror guys building crazy things and and uh there was uh working for italian horror guys argento zillow whiskey and fulci um who apparently got 
prosecuted for cruelty to animals. Are we about to mention the film that I think we're about to mention? I, di- I, I didn't write down the name of the film. Is it, is it Cannibal Holocaust? I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> that is one of two films I actively regret ever watching. <laughs> no, 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 but, but, uh, so, but it was, it was something, it was like this, uh, mutilated dead dog that actually Rimbaldi had built for the film. Oh, but they but didn't they buy thought it was real. Oh my God. Okay. And wow. they were like going to prosecute this director for mutilating animals. And they had like Rimbaldi had to bring, bring this in. thing into the courtroom. Oh. It's like, no, here's the mechanism. Okay. It's not real. We didn't really murder any dogs. Okay. <laughs> Which is just fascinating. Well, now I wish that they'd use that approach in Cannibal Holocaust, but that's <laughs> oh, a whole nother episode. Oh no. Yeah. And, but he also worked on the full size animatronic King Kong mm-hmm. for the 1976 uh, remake of that. Um, he built the hero alien, a nickname Puck, that was at the end of uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And he also built the mechanism and the, and the little, you know, jaws, uh, both sets of little jaws for the alien head. Oh, alien, wow. Okay. Which is, wow. Yeah. 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 Great piece of work there. Pretty, pretty amazing guy. And, and then after E.T., seems like he kind of fell off the map. I don't know if he decided to do some other work. Or he retired or... Or, or I'm just not looking in the right place for his credit mm-hmm. or <laughs> something. But so yeah, I thought it was interesting. He like worked on these amazing like horror and alien mechanisms and then just kind of disappeared yeah. a decade later. Yeah. But the, the, the guy who built the little spiders was had worked with him. Yeah. These effects guys came in and, and uh, added a bunch of new style effects yeah, to the shots, yeah, you know, kind yeah. of that everybody's uh, kind of ramping up their game post star Wars here. Oh yeah. So this is another place where CGI was involved where you wouldn't think it was. Do tell Mark. <laughs> <laughs> they brought in uh, the guys from Magi, the mathematical applications group incorporated mm-hmm. and uh, Richard Taylor. They had just worked on Tron. So they were trying, they were building this whole sequence where they were up-resing, in a sense, the carnival from the train. Like there yeah. was supposed to be this an, the animated train and they did a wireframe render of this camera move all around the animated train and there were parts of it that were supposed to be kind of like flying off and building this carnival. Yeah, it was going to like assemble itself from spider webs and the wheels on the train were going to turn into the Ferris wheel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the sequence in the article or the the description of the sequence in the article is fantastic. It sounds amazing. Yeah, I so I I watched the film, and then I rewatched it the next day while reading the article, and I'm reading a little bit ahead of where I was in the film, and I'm like, man, this sequence is going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. And then it never happened, which I assume is an artifact. I mean, when you're doing a print magazine, you're gonna. I assume the move the article is being worked on when the movie's not done yet. But I got right. really excited about the sequence, and I was like, nope, it's just there's a kids run into the woods and then there's a carnival and okay hmm. yeah i was really surprised about that myself yeah. after reading the article i was like wait did i miss something when yeah. i was because yeah. i was kind of half paying attention the first time i, was, I watched I it really i was like kind of sleepy yeah. was like maybe i just like yeah. i missed it yeah and then i went back i was like that's well there's kind of it looks like a regular real train yeah. that's just kind of trundling along and they yeah. they watch it pass yeah. And then they run after it, and the carnival's already there. Yeah, they come around a corner, and look, it's the carnival, yeah. So the, this whole build sequence, I guess, got scrapped for some reason. It, yeah. I, I'm not sure what happened. Yeah. But it sounded like they were going to render out a wireframe version of it, and then 
print those onto animation cells and then hand animate a bunch of yeah. stuff on top of on that, top kind of, of that, using yeah. that as a reference. And they said they were they were rendering it out to a twenty eight hundred by four thousand line screen. I'm wondering at this point had the word pixel not been invented yet? I don't I don't know. Or maybe they maybe it had been invented, but it was still kind of computer esoterica. So I mean, Cinefix is yeah still kind of right. They're writing for an enthusiast audience that's or even a, like a it's no. not a, it's not a technology enthusiast audience. I would think, well, yeah, maybe yeah. maybe that's it, yeah. that it's not like the technology hadn't permeated the yeah. film world as, you know, as, <laughs> as, as much now, as it would, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. I think, I mean, Don Chai has told me that even now, they still don't know how much of their audience is film mm. professionals mm. versus enthusiasts. enthusiasts yeah. And so it's kind of interesting to like, to see how they're trying to balance the way they cover the films where it's like, especially in this early stuff, it seems to to lean much more toward, oh, this is probably just film professionals reading yeah. it. And, yeah. you know, so we'll just like toss off very technical terms here and there. And, um, you People know, we'll understand uh, yeah. we'll assume yeah. that, you know, what we're talking yeah. about. <laughs> and sometimes I'm like, wait, what? I have to go look <laughs> stuff up. Cause I mean, even though I've been in this for years, it's just like, some of this yeah. terminology has either changed over the years or it's or it's hand animation yeah. stuff that I've never Isn't dealt being with. used and, anymore. Yeah. 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 There was at least one shot of this that was in the film. Uh, there's like the first shot, first couple of shots that they cut to the way it pulls out. It definitely has this kind of flat sheen to it of mm. just a, a computer render at the time. Mm. But then it, it seems like they dissolve and it said they were trying to do a single pullback that starts as CGI translates to a miniature shot of this, yeah. like the four foot Ferris wheel yeah. and then ends as a matte painting. Looking uh, at the shot that's actually in the film. Now it looks like there's the CGI shot. Then it cuts away to the kids again. And then it kind of looks like the CGI shot then dissolves into the miniature. Um, okay. And then it cuts to the kids again, yeah. and then we don't really see, either, like, they run up, and we're yeah. seeing just full-size sets at that point. Total change of subject. The sound design as the kids, like, the kids are chasing along or on the train, mm -hmm. and it emits that horrifying noise. Yes. Like, I really, that was another, that was another thing I noticed, like, you can tell that this, is, this film is a couple decades old, but in a way that was charming, at least for me. Like, like you see a movie like this today, there's constantly going to be move, like music in your ear telling you how to feel about what's going on on the screen. Yeah, a lot in this of times. case, they use music for accent bits here and there, mm. but a lot of times they're just willing to let like whatever the kids are doing or whatever conversations are happening just go with no music whatsoever. Like when the when the action yeah. really ramps up, the music kicks in, mm -hmm. but they're just willing to let the audio be the audio. Yeah, so I, I dug that. But it was charming. Some of the sound design in there was pretty yeah, impressive that, too. That that noise was that kind of wailing. Yeah. Uh, it was like, these these <laughs> these souls are not happy i do not know what this train runs on but it is not a good thing <laughs> yeah and there's a lot of that at the end too with the with the destruction of the yeah. carnival yeah good sound design there one of the things they said in the article too that it was even though it was, they were kind of at the same level of technology they just came off tron that trying to pull off the shot was much harder than tron because you know, it's it's depicting a real thing that people know what it looks like. It's yeah. not just, you know, well, this is the inside of a CPU. Of course, that's what it looks like. Yeah. You know, they can make up whatever they want. 30 years later, we will repackage this concept and call it the Uncanny Valley. 
yeah, I just wonder if there's something that just just didn't quite gel and they had to cut yeah, it. Yeah, it's a shame because the way it's described, and you can even see some like photos of test renders in the article. Mm-hmm. So clearly they had access to it when it was being worked on. Yeah. But must not have made it in for some reason. Yeah. Now, now I have a sad. <laughs> we'll be back in a moment with more of our Something Wicked chat. But now it's time for the Optical Trivia Contest brought to you by Cinefix. By the time you hear this, Cinefix 141 should be hitting newsstands with massive coverage of the conclusion of Peter Jackson's 20-year journey through Middle-earth with The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies, with armies of effects artists at Weta Digital, Weta Workshop, and NZFX. Cinefix 141 also covers Jupiter Ascending, the latest exotic sci-fi fantasy from the Wachowskis, with spectacular cosmic realms realized by visual effects supervisor Dan Glass and nearly a dozen VFX houses, plus coverage of the onset special effects and amazing makeup. Chappie, the latest futuristic action thriller from District 9's Neil Blomkamp, gets coverage of not only the visual effects by Image Engine, All In VFX Studio, and The Embassy, but also Widow Workshop's practical props and effects. And director Angelina Jolie's Unbroken gets coverage of the visual effects that back up this tale of courage and survival. All of this in Cinefix 141, on newsstands now, or order your copy today from Cinefix.com. Or you can download the Cinefix iPad app edition, which has extra photos and VFX breakdown videos. The Cinefix iPad app is available on the App Store, and you can click straight to it from the link in our show notes. Congratulations to Chris Johnson and Steve Smart, the winners of our January and February contests. If you want a chance to win your own one-year print subscription to Cinefix Magazine, all you have to do is answer this question. Name the unproduced Steven Spielberg project about aliens attacking a farmhouse that eventually led to the creation of E.T. Send your answer to feedback at opticalpodcast.com or use the feedback form on our website by midnight Pacific time, March 31st, 2015, and you'll be entered to win. One winner will be chosen from the correct entries. Now back to Something Wicked This Way Comes with Brian Cope. They did do some some interesting makeup effects that were... There's one line in there that calls it electronic makeup, but it seemed like it was all standard hand animation. Yeah. Yeah, there was the uh, the line electronic hair, and I want to know what that is. I want <laughs> yeah. elect- I want electric hair. <laughs> Can I use it to slay my enemies? <laughs> and they use it in one sequence with uh, the Dust Witch, yeah. who's never named in the no, movie. not even once. Also, <laughs> Pam Greer really earns her paycheck in this film yes. because they have her. I, I was honestly confused as to whether she was the same person mm-hmm. or whether like. This is one place where I feel like the mu- the movie didn't communicate super clearly. Like Pam yeah. Greer shows up a whole bunch, and I'm not always entirely As clear on characters. whether she's the same person or not. Yeah. yeah, like she's. I mean, eventually I'm like, oh, she's got the ring. It must be. It must be the same person. Like she's always the dust witch. It's just right. that the dust witch looks like a normal human being. Don't ever get on the Ferris wheel with the dust witch. <laughs> right. She's the lady on the Ferris wheel. She's yes. like the lead dancer of the yep. veiled dancers. Yeah, and we're going to spend some time. To, so that makeup <laughs> effect you're about to talk about, we're uh-huh. also going to rewind and talk about the whole barber storyline. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because apparently Disney got really <clears throat> freaked out by the, like, so it's a really tame, like, so later in the film, 
Dark crushes uh, the dad's hand. And apparently Disney really was unhappy with this because like the audience really gasped audibly when this well, happened. They, have, on the they built a prosthetic hand that he yeah. actually like crushes and yeah. his, his flesh splits yeah. open and yeah. you can see the bone and a yeah. little bit of blood comes yeah. out. And so it's, it's like that seems very un-Disney. That is very un-Disney. But I, the thing I really laughed about was at the same time, personally, as a modern viewer, I found <laughs> the entire Barber storyline to be way more creepy and disturbing than than one crushed hand. Maybe well, go ahead. Well, what's, what's, just, how does uh, this start out? He's like uh, talking well, to Holloway. Do, yeah. Well, they do that great sequence where you sort of like, as Tom Fury is walking through the town, you're meeting everyone who's going to have bad things happen to them later in the right, film. Right. Uh, and with the barber, he's just very much, he pines for the ladies from faraway <laughs> lands. Right. And in a way that is really, really unsettling. <laughs> He's, yeah, he's a bit creepy. Yeah. And then he takes his shirt off later on and it gets so much creepier. I don't think he takes it off. I oh, think it no. just kind of magically disappears. Well, yes. <laughs> he, I think he's, he disappears. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is also very un Disney. Yes. yes, exactly. Like, I, so th- I was like, so Disney, I understand you were concerned about your audience. I'm just saying maybe your concerns were placed in the wrong areas. Because, <laughs> man, Barbara be creepy, yo. <laughs> Yeah, dancing, dancing with the veiled ladies, yeah. and suddenly his shirt is gone. And yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> and this, this, was this rated G? No, this was PG. PG. Okay, okay. Yeah, All right. I think this is like kind of a slate of early '80s Disney films where Disney was trying to break out of its sure. like. Yeah, I I think to some degree Disney was kind of felt to be death <laughs> in oh. the theaters. It was like safe G family movies that weren't all that great script wise and no one really went to see them. They didn't make much money and (laughs) what you're saying. But so all of their live action stuff had that kind of stigma to it. And so they were trying to branch out a little bit and and do stuff that was a little outside of the normal Disney mold to which this definitely, I mean, this definitely is yeah, creepy shirtless barber. (laughs) (laughs) Pam Greer is is the, one of the lead dancers in that scene. <laughs> she's the lady on the carousel that makes yep. some guy disappear. Yeah, she's all she's yep. all over the place. And I I'm trying to figure out since you've read the book, is it so? The no. she's a dust witch because the, the like all of the the carnival they, people are the dust people. Yeah, collectively they are the dust people. I get it's been decades since I've read this, okay. but I get the impression it's like it's set in the Midwest. They blow in on the wind and an ill wind and bad things happen. Okay. And then they move on. And so is that like a, the negative connotation, like the dust bowl thing? They're yeah. actually kind of taking yeah. away life yeah. from the area. Yeah. And, and Tom Fury. Yeah. There's, so basically there's two oppositional forces. There's the creepy green fog, which in a very Disney way, the yeah. dust witch uses to sort of that work her stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Tom Fury is supposed to represent, you know, uh, well, it's lightning. Lightning is supposed to be the force of good, which right. is why he sells lightning rods to call it down. Oh, I see. Yeah. Not really to take it away from the houses, but I have to actually call it down yeah. toward the houses yeah, to, to protect defeat the ones. Yeah, he's actually not just a crazy goo. dude when he's wandering around giving his speech at the very beginning. He's, hmm. he's actively trying to protect. Yeah, the, see, that's not really clear either. He seems yeah, like a crazy dude. This The movie, the movie definitely <laughs> does leave some... Up to the reader, but only in a in a movie about a book that was written in the sixties would you get a character whose name is so on the nose as Jim Nightshade. <laughs> Jim Nightshade and Will Holloway, Holloway yeah, little kid. Yep. 
And there, and there's this whole backstory with Mr. Holloway. Yep. I guess he doesn't know how to swim. So yes. when Will was was swimming as a boy, yes. he was about to drown, and and yep. Mr. Holloway couldn't save him. So uh, Nightshade's dad guilt. Yeah. is the one who actually saved him. So that's that's part of like what Mr. Dark uses to entice him. They're yeah. like trying to bring everybody in. Like you know, what's your your yeah. great desire weakness, and dream yeah. and yep. yeah, weakness. Take, exactly. your, take your desire and make it your weakness. And yeah. then we're gonna feed off it and make it disappear. Yes, on a Ferris wheel. But they actually meet up in the library. Because, uh, well, they, the, the kids had gotten into the tent and saw them torturing. By the uh, way, did you notice the cameo? Which is not a cameo. What? What? No. When, when, the, when the little person wanders up and it says, hey, kids, get out of here. You're too young to see this. Also, who runs Barter Town? That's totally, <laughs> oh, that's that's the same totally guy? master from uh, Beyond Thunderdome. <laughs> nice. Since they had been seeing some stuff that they, they shouldn't be seeing, I guess that Mr. Dark was after the kids so they wouldn't go blab to the adults and yeah. ruin everything. Yeah. Those meddling kids. Yes. <laughs> In a very Scooby-Doo manner. Yeah. <laughs> so I was un- another thing I was unclear on. I- I'm not actually clear on whether Mr. Dark was claiming to be Jim's father or whether he actually was Jim's father. Huh. You see? Yeah. There, don't get me wrong. There's some things that. The Jim Jim's father, who's off in darkest Africa, and is going to bring yeah. him home a parrot. Yes, can, well, a parrot, and also several like trinkets made from human body parts. Another thing that probably doesn't happen <laughs> since a book written in the 1960s. <laughs> For the modern viewer, that's a little disturbing. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. I hadn't read it yeah. that way. But I mean, he. I mean, he clearly is pulling on those strings. Like that's his way of getting his hooks into Jim. But yeah. I, there's like an instant uh, dislike between Mr. Holloway and and. Mr. Dark. Yeah, it doesn't seem like he would react that way. I mean, to me, that if it, if he knew him, really, yeah, yeah, it, it really seemed, seemed like, like he was a stranger. But yeah. maybe you know that would that's the kid's yeah. deepest desire. He wants yeah. his father back, yeah. so why not you know pull on that? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, so when he, when Mr. Dark meets up with uh, Mr. Holloway in the library, he's a librarian. There's this whole thing where he's like trying to entice him to uh, you know his desire to. You know, maybe be younger and yep. then you can go back yep. and save your kid yep. and all that, which I'm not sure how that would work. But Mr. Holloway, <laughs> A, can't swim, which is why he couldn't save his kid back in the day. Uh-huh. And B, he's got a weak heart now. But his family is oh, all right. Like, like there's, there's that whole thing where the dad is like kind of looking ahead and saying, I should prepare my son for when I'm not around. And the kid's having none of it. He's like, <laughs> we are not going to talk about this. Like all those moments where you expect the big father son right. to ha- like talk to happen, the kid is like, "Nope, sorry, got to go to bed. Mom would be mad if we're talking. Got to run. Not having this conversation. Everything's fine. You'll be okay, Dad." <laughs> Going to bed. Yep. Oh, yeah. So maybe that was it. He's just like, well, "You can be young and healthy yeah. again, and then learn to swim." Yes. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Mister Dark is offering him this stuff, and he's like, "You know, go back to when you were 30. and he's like, "Nope, nope." Well, okay, this offer isn't going to last forever. <laughs> Or he, tears the page he, he like out. has yeah. a book in his hand and he tears the page out. He's like 31, yep. <laughs> 32. And he it's keeps a, ripping I mean, pages a, out. Well, so, I, so that is a fantastic effect. And yeah. also throughout the entire film, uh, oh, I've just spaced the name of the actor that plays Mr. Dark. Jonathan Price. Yes, Jonathan Price. Like throughout the entirety of the film, like I don't know if he has like stage magic training, but like his physical movements in the film mm. are kind of great to watch. Like just from the very first time you see him, it's a long shot. He's facing away from the camera 
And I'm like, that is the world's most like Shakespearean oh, literature. Tossing yeah, the flyers. Like, like into couldn't the town care square. less. I fling this away from me <laughs> gracefully in the wind. <laughs> but I mean, he really, and then he's uh, showing the kids his tattoos. And I have a few tattoos, let me tell mm-hmm. you. No amount of hand clenching and wrist rolling is going to make the tattoos do what they do in this film. <laughs> but I totally want a tattoo that does that. Yeah. So I, throughout the entirety, and he's just like, he's handing the kids some tickets and the hand is just very graceful. Mm-hmm. And he pulls his hand away. Anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got a little bit of a hand crush on Jonathan Price. <laughs> That's very cool. Yeah. I noticed that too. When he's like, when he's ripping the pages out, yeah, it's like this, <laughs> this flourish. Yeah. Like he's like throwing some. Yeah. Something that will explode on the floor yeah. so he can disappear. Batman with a smoke <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> While they're doing that, they make the pages glow. It's it's just, it's uh, in a hand animation effect. I shouldn't yeah. say just, because yeah. they spent a lot of time working on this. And yeah. It looks really great. Yeah. Um, but they did, um, you know, on the on the page itself, but also really trying to get the, the graduated edges of it correct so that it really looked like the pages were glowing. You have interactive light on the people and the, the other books in the library and all that. And there was an earlier, actually an earlier scene that was just totally mundane when the train was theoretically rolling through the town. Like, I'm pretty sure the smoke was actually animated in later. It didn't quite look right, but it looked not quite right in that way that Disney animation tends, yeah. tended to look when it was there's, hand-drawn. Yeah, it's, there's this matte painting of the, like, kind of the night shot of the village. You, there's the two kids. They live right next door to each other, so they're, like, talking to each other from the upstairs windows. Yeah. Um, but then you cut to this matte painting that it shows the two houses right up front. Um, this was painted by Michael Lloyd that was done as a multiplane painting. So there's four layers. There's foreground houses of the two kids. Then there's the carnival train, there's the background village, and then there's the night sky behind it, all on four separate planes of glass. And they, they do a camera move on it that you can just, you know, just get that little bit of parallax in there yep. so it feels more real, real like there's yeah. really depth to it. So the, and then they must have put the, the, the smoke, smoke in the there as well, yeah. But that's the, uh, that's all going on together. It's an amazing looking match. Yeah. It looks really great. I thought it was interesting too. The, they were talking about the way they did the matte paintings. They... Usually it was, they just do a bipack of, you know, the painting and the original production plate, whatever they're trying to match, you know, to like have a little bit of live action in the match shot with it. But there they did this thing they were calling YCMs or uh, which were color separation masters. I assume it's yellow, cyan, and magenta. I was confused by that as well, yeah. (laughs) Um, But it it allows them to kind of like vary the color balance more precisely on each of the the three colors to get a better match to any of the live action footage that they're trying to match. So they they actually went through, Jesse Silver was was talking about his process, and when they did that, uh, he'll do like a rough portion of the matte painting first, and then, you know, try and the, they'll, they'll match the live plate up against it. And they'll do 125 frames of what they called a Cinex, which is a kind of a color and exposure balancing test. And then once they kind of get something that looks pretty good, then he'll start to refine the painting for a while. And then they'll come back and do another like 27 frames Cinex to kind of hone in on where exactly the balance is. And they'll kind of go back and forth a few times to really get that match. Tweaking until precisely it's there. Yeah. Which I thought was, that's pretty cool that yeah. you know, they're taking so, so much pains yeah. have gone into yeah. really trying to match these things together. Like the shots of, uh, 
Tom Fury. Yeah. The guy with the lightning rods who comes into town at at the very beginning of the film, you get this nice wide vista of like kind of the road leading into town and the village in the background, a little bit of move on the shot. And he turns around and looks over and you see the big dust storm. Yeah. That is bringing the the carnival. Yeah, I thought it was funny also that uh, Jesse Silver was commenting on like the first time he saw matte paintings, he he thought it was a pile of slop quote. (laughs) That's a quote from a pile of slop. Um, but it's just like the, the, most of the matte paintings are, they're not as detailed as you really think there are. There's a lot of kind of suggesting yeah. it's just in order to fool the camera and not like super fine detail everywhere. But and hopefully we'll have him on the show soon um, and talk a little bit more about matte painting. Mm-hmm. You know, we never got back to talking about the the makeup. Oh, there's <laughs> the really switch. like not even, not even make there. So there's some amazing makeup in, in the film. And most of it, it seems like, is in the background. Like mm-hmm. the scene, the climactic scene when uh, the kids are stopping the interrogation slash torture of, of uh, Tom Fury. Mm-hmm. There's like two super creepy. Uh, well, well <laughs> yes, no, uh, The Shining, Kubrick. There's two like Kubrickian like <laughs> oh girls, the, the twins. In, yeah, yeah, twins. And then there's like just somebody just sitting there with a really like massively misshapen head, just not even interacting. It's clearly a real person wearing a, this huge makeup. Yeah. Uh, well, they, they had done uh, apparently a bunch of uh, really crazy makeups. Uh, Bob Schiffer did most of them. Yeah. That um, The makeup artist, um, they had built a, a lot of stuff for inside the the circus tent there, um, the carnival tent. Uh, and that was part of a sequence that got yeah. mostly chopped out. But I guess, mm-hmm. you know, some of those uh, creations still made it made in. Made it into the film, yeah. Because also during the parade sequence, there's a bunch of great makeup just sort of yeah. scattered into the crowd scene where Mr. Dark is doing a search of the town under the guise of, let's have a parade, which weirdly uses a funeral dirge and has several massively deformed people. Oh, and also several townspeople who've now been like pulled into my into <laughs> my crew, but nobody recognizes them. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's just some great makeup in that and sequence. The, I don't know. I'd have to go back and look at it again. And was the bird girl in that sequence? That was, they talked about that. Yeah, the they talked about the bird girl. I really wanted to see the bird girl, but I don't remember seeing her. But it's just like kind of this massive, uh, you know, makeup job with, with like, you know, appliances and they're actually kind of turning them into half a bird. Yeah. <laughs> Sounded pretty amazing. It was also a really uh, a creative repurposing of what had to be a surplus Batman mask. <laughs> oh, really? I missed that. <laughs> yeah, the one, uh, the the little person who comes and talks to Jim Nightshade's mom. Mm. Like she bends down and has a conversation of like, "That's a Batman mask with a <laughs> pom pom in the forehead." <laughs> I've seen those ears. <laughs> Bob Schiffer also built um, like a series of like, like at the very end. Mister um, Dark is pinned by the forces of good. Yeah. Well, we haven't talked about the carousel yet because the carousel. when the carousel, like the first time they did the carousel, oh, yes. that shot is amazing. Like I was, I was sitting there like I, I wanted to know how they'd done that. And luckily the article explains how they'd done that. <laughs> so the second time I watched the film, I was like, that's really clever. What, what they did, did, what did they do, Brian? <laughs> so basically the, the way the carousel works in Mr. Dark's terrible, terrifying circus of evil is you get on it. And if you go forward, you get older and if you go backwards, you get younger, which means, so he's got his sidekick, his henchman, Mr. Mm-hmm. Cougar, by the way, not spelled like the animal, spelled <laughs> right. in that charmingly different way that you spelled names back in the 60s. Uh, but anyway, so Cougar, <laughs> Cougar is the guy, he basically like runs around and does all the legwork. Like Mr. Dark stands in the back and is like, get that guy. And Cougar is the one who works the, the, the uh, contest booth 
that pulls in the guy who really cares about money and winning mm-hmm. and gives him tickets that get him on the get him on the Ferris wheel where he's never seen again because dust witch. <laughs> right. um, so, anyways, so Mister Dark needs to send <laughs> Cougar out at night to get more people roped into his plot and feed on their souls or whatever. Right. Uh, so he puts them on the carousel and it spins around backwards and there's this amazing shot where basically because they weren't thinking about effects at the time, they'd only shot the carousel at 24 frames per second, but they needed Mm -hmm. to do, they didn't have a lot of footage to work with. Right. So what they did was they, each frame, they printed five frame, five images, five frames worth of images on Mm -hmm. in a way that I'm imagining looks, I don't, this isn't in the article, but I'm guessing it's like kind of like a bell curve. So the middle frame is the one that you just go ahead and burn in. And then the one before it is, is ramped down. And Mm -hmm. the one before that is ramped down, but they're all on the same frame and same going forward. Right, so just it's kind this of blending consecutive yeah, frames. It into, does this great job of making everything look swirling and weird, and you're like, bad things are happening on that carousel, <laughs> and I can't quite tell what they are, but I don't like it. It de-ages Cougar, who then runs around in the town and does a really amazing impression of Chucky from three decades or two decades <laughs> later. Like He looks like a walking Chucky, <laughs> and he goes out and gets the teacher, their little, the whisper teacher. And I was obsessed with beauty and punished with blindness because irony. Yes. And writing. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a Twilight Zone episode. (laughs) Not that this is a bad thing. (laughs) So then that was taken to an extreme at the end of the film uh, when the they finally are like defeating the the bad guys. Yeah. I know we're kind of jumping back and forth here, but the <laughs> he's actually like, you know, the the guy uh with the lightning, Tom Fury, he yep. gets free. Oh my goodness. And he like he takes his one of his lightning rods and actually like, like harpoons the dust witch. the dust witch, which is an amazing sequence. <laughs> Cause you just got Pam Greer clutching at this ah, thing through her belly yeah. and they do this amazing uh, animated sequence of like all the lightning kind of coming up and consuming her and then just zoop, yeah it, it turns her into like a little twisting vortex ghost and sucks her up through the roof yeah, yeah. that's pretty amazing yeah. I well, love that animation we, should talk, we have to talk about the, the mirror maze as well yeah Oh, we'll get to that in a second. We but, won't get to that in a second. <laughs> but Mr. Dark is trapped on the carousel by the lightning yeah. that is like you know finally defeating the bad guys so apparently and this is one way in which the movie differs from the book because in the book oh. it, he just literally his leg gets stuck his leg gets caught on one of the horses so he gets dragged around and aged and they're oh. like oh that's yeah that noise <laughs> that noise you just made they're like that's why that's not how it happens in the movie <laughs> huh. yeah like gotta punch it up a bit boys yeah you would, you would think it would take more than a pant leg to defeat the devil yes you would <laughs> and thus movie Yes, but Bob Schiffer also developed multiple aged heads for Jonathan yeah. Price, and like you can't t- really take volume away from a person's real head. Yeah, <laughs> so they had to be, to be kind of yeah. puppet heads yep. as he kind of shrinks and ages and turns into a skeleton. Yep. But it's very cool that that progression, um, as you see him, you know they they do the same sort of frame blending thing uh, with the carousel, yep. and uh, you know he's eventually getting older and older and older every time they come back, cut back to him, yeah. which is, feels a lot like what, uh, Indiana Jones and the last crusade. I was just going to say years yeah. later. Yeah. I mean this, this, the, the carousel in this movie and the melting at the end of Raiders are like the two like, Oh, faces. <laughs> oh no, that's not a good face. Oh, oh I'm going to remember this. I'm scarred for life. Yeah. yeah. But in a good way, yeah. scarred in a good way. Yeah, mm. no, it's good stuff. Yeah. But then the, the, couple of things that weren't 
uh, Bob Schiffer's uh, makeup. They did uh, animation makeup, which is way forerunner to like some of the digital makeups sure. they do now. But they like when they wanted to have Pam Greer have this really creepy visage. Yeah. Um, they actually which did an I, animated I face for her. <laughs> I like the one that's in the movie. Yeah. I actually like that turned around. I was like, Ooh, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She like turns to discover the two kids, you know, sneaking underneath the tent yeah. and like suddenly her face is all craggy. And, yeah. Well, not even, like, not even craggy. It was, yeah, it was like <laughs> blue, like blue, white. And they yeah. keep, which has to ha- which has to harken back to the bit at the very beginning of the film where she's frozen in a block of ice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was I was thinking that too because there there is at the beginning of that sequence when they're still in there torturing. Uh, I can never remember his name. Tom Fury. Fury. Thank you. <laughs> it's all good. Just think of uh, this is what Agents a sidekick does. <laughs> and she's in there uh, in this white dress, but it's like the very first shot of her almost makes her look like she's. You know, maybe it was wax or something like she's encased yeah. in ice for a second. Yeah, and she sort of it like parts. She parts the veil or or dress or whatever it is, and it sort of falls away like ice falling off a roof. It's yeah, re- it's that really, animation. Yeah, it was really well done. And then they they do that animation of her face there as well to kind of like give her that super creepy look. And they did similar work in this Hall of Mirrors sequence yeah. that we were going to talk about. The that I guess Jason Jason Robards, Mister Holloway, was. They drew him in there to, well, here, look at all these people that are, that we've already trapped. How are you going to, how are you going to beat us? We've already got everybody else from the town. Right. And then bringing up again that, that bit where he's like, he couldn't save his son and he's, he's being so drawn into it that you can see him aging. Aging. Yeah. And that was animation on top of him. That that wasn't uh, physical makeup. Yeah. Very cool that they did with like, you know, just extra kind of shadows, shadows. and stuff to make it look like his face had gotten more wrinkled and yeah. craggy. And it, you, know, you really felt bad for the guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they did some very cool stuff with that too. The, um, when he finally decides, no, I'm like, I'm going to fight this. And, yeah. and you know, his son's like, no, I love you. The, the punching, <laughs> save me. <laughs> this, this article talks about how they did the punching through the mirror. Yes. Uh, effect. And that was super clever. So basically it was a thin pane. So it's, it's vertical. They, they present it as a horizontal punch, but they're doing it by punching down. Right. And it's a thin pane of glass and then a couple inches of mineral oil and then water beneath that. Right. And because apparently they, they filmed it at a high speed and the mineral oil is heavier. So it gives a more convincing and baby splash. And I'm like, yeah, giving that dense kind of people that make movies are smart. <laughs> that was the conclusion I drew. That's, that's the one thing I keep coming back to in these. It's like, you know, it's not just all, I mean, not to denigrate the people who are doing computer effects yeah, these days, because yeah. they do some amazing yeah. stuff now, but it's, it seems like, with the computer effects, there's a very small number of people who are actually figuring it out and doing the programming and, yeah. and all that. And then there's a lot of people using it. Yeah. Whereas all these guys is like, well, we don't have those tools that we can just yeah. copy and paste to everyone. Yeah. You know, we have to figure out how to do this every time. You might, you might spend weeks building something and then on the day when you need it to work, it doesn't work. Like right. That's <laughs> the degree of effort that you're putting forth just to get to the point where something could fall apart yeah it's amazing so and there's just yeah just i'm just amazed by the the ingenuity of the people yeah. who are working on films yeah. at this time yeah. but then, you know that's a lot of what special effects is is like nobody's ever done this before how do we, we do, like this? do this <laughs> which is why which is how we end up selling 200 spiders to schoolboys for 10 bucks a pop <laughs> oh wait did i jump ahead <laughs>
No, go ahead. <laughs> so they, there's a there's a sequence later on. So the dust, uh, Mr. Dark says, hey, Dust Witch, go get the kids. They've seen, literally says they've, t- they've seen too much, which I had to chuckle at. Yes. Uh, so she, and like we mentioned before, she was originally going to float, float by in a balloon and like reach down and try to tear the house open and grab them. But instead right. they're like, ah, that didn't work. So instead, hundreds of spiders. I hate spiders. And I had to laugh <laughs> at a bit in the article where they're like, Eh, we just finished Raiders of the Lost Ark. If we could do snakes, let's do spiders this time. Eh, yeah. So, and this must have been, re- this was reshot in later because as we mentioned before, like the kids have visibly aged, which is the one place where I sort of like popped out of the film and was like, yes. something is not right here. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, they, but they said in the article that Dyer had a, like a phobia of spiders. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. they, yeah they, they spent like a half page just talking about how like, he's like, well, I'm going to be shooting this scene with hundreds of spiders. Yeah. Why don't they put them on my arm? Which is not a thought that would ever occur to me, but I guess maybe he didn't want to freak out like, on. He's the effects supervisor. He's yeah. got to deal with it somehow. I, so this is why well, you, this is why you have assistants. I guess, <laughs> dear assistant, go into that tank full of spiders. I'll be out here having a sandwich. If you keep putting it on my arm, eventually I'll become immune. Right? Yes, exactly. Or superpowers. Either way, bonus. <laughs> exactly. So, so there were there were a lot of real spiders. Two hundred real yeah. spiders. Plus another 200 rubber spiders. Which I only know, like the first time I watched through that scene, I was like, "How they are stepping on so many spiders. Yeah. They are stepping on so many spiders. <laughs> Spider Holocaust. And then, yeah, when you read the article, it explains that only <laughs> half of them were real. So I assume they were, you know, only only rubber spiders were harmed in the making of this film. I sure hope so. Well, the, and there were two, of, okay, there were six of them that, that uh, Raponi built that, that could actually crawl along. There was a little, had little wire armatures in them. Um, and there were two more that were filled with like a, this milky gelatin mister. So the kids could actually squish them. Yeah. <laughs> and they, there is some squishing going on. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best. <laughs> it's true. And apparently they would herd the actual spiders by uh, blowing them with a hairdryer. Yes. Like, to get them, to get them going in the right direction. They didn't want them just like going, you know, willy nilly. Yeah. How so do we make them go where we want them <laughs> to go? Turns out. Hairdryer. <laughs> So they, they finally get to the end. He's gone, you know, through the mirror maze. He's He saves his son by punching through the mirror and pulls his son out, which I guess is his real son That's his, yeah, who got I trapped. Think his son is also trapped in the maze at this point. Oh, I, okay. I assume the... I assume by confronting Not just a, his fears a double and son. Guilt, yeah. <laughs> now he ends up with wait. two sons. <laughs> it's like, this is the prequel to Source Code, isn't it? <laughs> We'll yank this version of my son out of the past. <laughs> my two sons. <laughs> Since they've they've helped uh, Tom Fury get free, yeah. I remembered his name this time. Yes, and the lightning is is attacking everything and killed the witch. Yes, speared Mister Dark. That, that spearing sequence is pretty amazing. It is. Yeah. So then they're running out of there, and the storm. That has been over their shoulder the entire movie yep. finally yep. comes and whips up and rips apart all of the carnival yeah. and just sucks it up into the yeah. Which when I when I watched the film the first time, I was like, man, how did they get all that stuff going up into the sky? And then I read the article and realized that I was an idiot. <laughs> because in fact, they did what any sane effects technician would do, and they built the carnival hanging from the ceiling. <laughs> and let gravity do the work for them. Yes. <laughs> well, they built it on the floor first, so they well, could yes. shoot. Yes, you know, and then they bolted it to the ceiling. And but it's 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 much like I I 
I thought it was cool that it's much like CGI stuff now where they kind of like pre-cut stuff yep. and then when it explodes, you know, it yeah. looks like it's really exploding that there's little, you know, irregularly shaped chunks and everything. They did the same thing here. Yeah. It's like they, it's, you know, it's not like the poltergeist house where they just like rip through with cables <laughs> and hope for the best. Here we go. It's, they meticulously went through and like ripped everything apart and then kind of tacked it back together yeah. with wax and tissue paper. Well, in, <laughs> well, in some cases they also had to like, so like the, the Ferris wheel, I think they said they were going to build it from balsa, but oh. then it, it wasn't going to collapse. It wasn't going to fall apart convincingly. So right. apparently they built it from lead. It's like, yeah. a, it's a big lead miniature so that or when at least it, the collapsing. Yeah, version, it gets, yeah. Yeah. It gets pulled down. It twists and, and it's a really great effect. Yeah. It goes like, <laughs> And then so much of the rest of it, they, you know, they had pre pre broke it up and yeah. then just like, you know, shot a couple of big fans at yeah. it to, to rip everything, rip everything apart yep. and then gravity pulled it down. And, but then you turn the camera upside down and it looks, <laughs> looks like it's all flying up into the air. It gets, it gets unwise people to think that gravity goes the other direction. <laughs> <laughs> they had also put in this giant uh, vortex cloud that was going Let's on. Let's talk about that cloud tank. <laughs> Well, they built a brand new cloud tank. Yeah. That's like the first cloud tank they had built at Disney. Yeah. Ron Tanson uh, built that in like nine by six by six feet, a uh, big steel reinforced plexiglass thing. Um, took him what, a month and a half to build. I think, yeah, it was like, yeah, six, six weeks. Yeah. And they, my favorite part in the article <clears throat> was they talked about how uh, they had to, quote, rotate employees through quickly because, quote, the tank <laughs> was cleaned with chemicals that were highly toxic oh it's weird when they were sealing it yeah like all the from the caulk whatever caulking fluid they were using on the inside was like putting off this toxic vapor yeah (laughs) like well we could give everyone hazmat suits or just use more people and push them through quickly (laughs) this works too maybe there wasn't effective uh gas that's true there have been that's that's entirely possible i don't know yeah there were gas masks either for way, mustard gas in way, the glad I'm not War a cloud so. tank cleaner. <laughs> not a job I want to have. Uh, and they didn't. They didn't really say. Uh, I assume they did like some sort of a, a forced. Um, uh, what's what's the word I want? The uh, vortex. Uh, like making a, an eddy with a like you know putting water in so that it yeah. rotated around in that kind of vortex right. pattern. So when they pour they the see, white paint in the, there, yeah. It gives it that that vortex, you know, tornado look. Mm-hmm. I'm like my, okay. well, my brain words. It's not yep, hard. <laughs> look, in addition to sidekicks, you have an editor. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> I thought it was cool that they also built a small test tank uh, just to try out new materials and stuff. Because like most of the cloud tank stuff that you've seen use, like you know, where it's this. Um, this cloud layer, uh, they use like an inversion layer where it's either salt water and, and fresh water on top or that sort of thing to kind of create that inversion layer in the center so that when they pour, it's usually tempera paint that's injected into the tank that it kind of spreads out in this yeah. way that kind of sits on top of that layer and you can look underneath the cloud and you know, it looks more like a thunder cloud. Yeah. yeah. But they, you know, they wanted to be able to experiment with different types of paint and materials that they were going to inject into the tank. So they built a small tank to be able to play around with, and they don't have to, you know, spend the time out, and money. Yeah. yeah, if it's like a day to fill up the big tank full of water, yeah. <laughs> they don't have to kill all of that time yeah. just to play around with it. 
yeah, so a lot of the clouds were were built there as, as you know, as well as the the one that really destroys the carnival at the mm-hmm. end there. Anything else? Yeah, surprising for a Disney film. Oh, child yeah. decapitation. Yeah. <laughs> is this a, is it yeah. is, is an only only Disney film with child decapitation? I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. Perhaps this will be next week's trivia I don't question. Know. Do Touchstone films count? I don't know. <laughs> oh. Wait, wasn't Seven a Touchstone? Oh. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> But yeah, it was like the, uh, on top of Halloween's hand, there's, there's a shot where the little kids run out of the uh, tent and come immediately upon a guillotine. Yeah. <laughs> They've summoned up a guillotine. And, and, and it chops down and you, you cut to the head in the basket and it's the, the little kid Holloway's head <laughs> all bloody. Staring, and, staring at him. And just in case the audience didn't get it, like they switch back to the actual Holloway actor and he like does this gesture towards his throat. Like, <laughs> that's my is throat. Is my head still there? <laughs> Am I? <laughs> Is I dead? It's like, oh my goodness. Well, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was an interesting experience. Yeah. It's, it's not quite my cup of tea, but. It, I mean, it was, there were some moments where it had aged in a way that I found goofily charming. Like for instance, when mm. several members of my local community have been captured by an evil carnival and then been sucked up into the sky. And, <laughs> but I've resolved my issues with my father and my best friend. So let's go skipping down the road back to town at the conclusion of the film. <laughs> to leave the audience out into the lobby with a good feeling. Yeah. So, yeah, I liked it. It was a pretty matte painting. It was an amazing matte painting. <laughs> it didn't show any of the deep psychological trauma. Mm. Well, thank you, Brian, very much for coming on. <laughs> I've had quite a lot of fun. Thank you very much. <laughs> you can find our website and the show notes for this episode at opticalpodcast.com. We're also available on Twitter, Facebook, and SoundCloud at username Optical Podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. It's free and easy to do. Just search for Optical Podcast on iTunes or follow the link from our website. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us reach new listeners. Big thanks to Cinefix for helping sponsor us. And remember, you can go to Cinefix.com to order issue 141 covering The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies, Jupiter Ascending, Chappie, and Unbroken. You can also get the new issue in the Cinefix iPad app, along with every back issue of the magazine, including issue 12, where you can read even more details about Something Wicked This Way Comes. Just follow the link from our website. Thanks again to Brian Covey for chatting with us. Thanks to our dialogue editor, Joseph Ravenson. Thanks to Digital Drew for all of the music in this episode. And you can find more of his music at digitaldrew.com. That's digital, D-R-O-O.com. And thanks to Mike Gower for designing our Aperture logo. I'm your host, Mark Bosco. See you next time.